ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So last time we started the chapter Babu ma jaa anna al-ghuluwa fi qubur as-salihin yusayyiruha awthanan tu'badu min dunillah The chapter regarding what has been mentioned about excessiveness and exaggeration at the graves of the righteous causes them to become idols that are worshipped besides Allah. So this chapter, it is connected, as the Shaykh said, to the previous chapters that spoke about ghulu, excessiveness and exaggeration, and going beyond the bounds. So here in particular, it is about that exaggeration and excessiveness at the graves of the righteous people to the extent that eventually the people begin to worship there, to start doing different forms of ibadah there. So we had mentioned the first narration last time, the narration from the Muwattah of Imam Malik, أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال اللهم لا تجعل قبري وثنا يعبد أو الله do not make my grave an idol that is worshipped اشتد غضب الله على قوم اتخذوا قبور أنبيائهم مساجدا that Allah's anger became severe upon a people who took the graves of their prophets as places of worship. That we mentioned last time, and we covered it last time. Today then, we move on to the next narration in the chapter. وَلِبْنِ جَرِيرٍ بِسَنَدِهِ عن سفيان عن منصور عن مجاهد أفرأيتم اللات والعزى قال كان يلت لهم السويق فما تفعكفوا على قبره In this narration then reported by Ibn Jarir and Ibn Jarir is the famous Mufassir, the Tafsir of Ibn Jarir, you will have heard of, otherwise known as Tafsir al-Tabari. Ibn Jarir, al-Imam al-Jalil, Imam al-Mufassirin, Muhammad ibn Jarir al-Tabari, sahibu kitab al-Tafsir, al-Ladhi asbaha marji'an, للمفسرين الذين جاءوا من بعده 
فأعظم التفاسير هو تفسير ابن جرير ابن جرير has a book of تفسير تفسير ابن جرير famously recognized and known as and that is basically the head of the books of tafsir meaning all of the other books of tafsir that came after ibn jarir uh, uh, ibn kathir and qurtubi and everybody they all basically return back to ibn jarir it is as though the source is ibn jarir that is considered as the umm in the books of tafsir then all the others they come after him they all take from him ibn kathir so much from ibn jarir so this is recognized as the greatest perhaps the greatest book of tafsir the tafsir of ibn jarir tafsir at-tabari and it's a big book 20 odd volumes each volume is thick and big it's a large book the tafsir of ibn jarir and then as Sheikh Al-Fawzan mentions, أَمَّا تَفَاسِيرُ أَهْلِ الْكَلَامِ وَأَهْلِ الْمَنْطِقِ فَلَيْسَ مَرْجِعُهَا كُتُبُ أَهْلِ السُنَّةِ That as for the tafsir of the people of rhetoric, their books of tafsir, they do not use the books, or their books of tafsir are not a reference point for Ahlul Sunnah. And neither do they go back to the books of Sunnah when they wrote their tafsir. Their books of tafsir are built upon their logic and their principles of rhetoric and philosophy and other types of things that the people of innovation and misguidance were involved in, their books of tafsir are written upon that style. Whereas the books of tafsir of the Salaf are those written upon the style of Ahlul Sunnah in the names and attributes and other affairs, then you have this tafsir al-Tabari, and then after that the other famous books that you know of. Here the Sheikh he talks about a few of them that have some mistakes in them. Tafsir al-Razi wa tafsir al-Zamakhshari wa fiha min al-Khalq wa fiha min al-Sharq al-Shayq al-Kathir. He says, Tafsir al-Zamakhshari, there is a lot of uh, error in that and a lot of evil in that from the incorrect that has been mentioned within it. Even if there may be some benefits, maybe there are certain sections where he has mentioned good things and there are benefits, but overall that book has a lot of errors in it. There are errors within that one the Sheikh mentions. And then Tafsir al-Razi, he says, أَكْثَرُ شَرًّا مِنْ تَفْسِيرِ الزَّمَخْشَرِ Tafsir al-Razi, he says, is worse than Tafsir Az-Zamakhshari, because all of it, Tafsir Ar-Razi, this one, it is based upon suppositions or, or hypothetical scenarios, and the way that he gives that Tafsir is not based upon the style of the Salaf in explaining the speech of Allah. 
So the ones that are correct and a person should refer back to, they are the ones that are built upon the speech of Allah, upon the principles of tafsir. And of course you know that there are the different methods of tafsir, the highest level and the best method of tafsir. We've mentioned it many times before, is which method? Tafsir of the Qur'an via the Qur'an itself. There are certain books of tafsir where the authors have given you the tafsir of the Qur'an by using other parts of the Qur'an. There are tafsirs out there, they give you the full tafsir of Al-Fatiha using other ayat of the Qur'an from different places. Full tafsir of Al-Fatiha using the ayat of the Qur'an from the rest of the Qur'an and that is obvious. Because as Ibn Al-Qayyim said, Al-Fatiha is like the core of the rest of the Qur'an and the rest of the Qur'an revolves around Al-Fatiha. So there is nothing surprising that you can give a full detailed tafsir of Al-Fatiha by using the rest of the chapters of the Qur'an and the ayat in the Qur'an. And the famous one written in that style is the tafsir of Sheikh Al-Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shantiti Adwa'ul Bayan. That particular tafsir is written by verses of the Qur'an. Gives you the tafsir of one ayah by finding other ayat in the Qur'an that explain it. Then the next ayah finds other ayat in the Qur'an that explain it. So gives you the tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. If however you cannot find the tafsir of a particular ayah from any other ayat, then you can look at of course the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. Look at the sunnah. Maybe there is a hadith that explains this particular ayah. Maybe the Prophet ﷺ clarified in a hadith the meaning of a particular ayah. And there are many examples of that where there are clear cut a hadith clarifying and giving you the tafsir of certain ayat in the Qur'an. One of the famous examples of that, just as an example, is regarding the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah on seeing Allah in the afterlife. It is mentioned in more than one ayah, words around the effect of the ziyadah. لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا husna, They will have the husna in reference to paradise. And then they will also have in one ayah waladayna mazid, in another one ziyadah. This mazid and this ziyadah, this extra that the people of paradise are going to be given, what is the tafsir of it? What is the extra that the people of paradise are going to be given after all of their other blessings? We need a tafsir. So, in that case, there is a clear-cut hadith where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned this ayah and about the mazid, the ziyadah, the extra that the people of paradise will be given is 
that they will be allowed to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that ayah of the Qur'an, we know that the mazid, waladayna mazid, and we have more for them. What is the more that Allah has for the believers? We know absolutely the tafsir of that is to be able to see Allah. How? Because there is a, an authentic hadith giving you that tafsir. So there are examples of that where there are authentic narrations giving you the tafsir of parts of the Qur'an. And then after that, even if you cannot find any ayah or hadith giving you the tafsir, then you can look to the statements of the Sahaba. Look at the statements of the Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum. They were the most knowledgeable of that. They learned the Qur'an from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They learned the tafsir, the understanding of it from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So look at their statements and what they mentioned about certain ayat to understand the tafsir of it. If you cannot even find that, no other ayat explaining it, no other ahadith explaining it, no other statements of the Sahaba explaining it, then you can resort to the minimum, which is what the Arabic language dictates. Because the Qur'an was revealed in the clear Arabic tongue. And so you can refer to the Arabic language and, that, and what that would necessitate if that situation arose at the end. <coughs> So the Shaykh says, the best books of tafsir are tafsir al-Tabari, tafsir ibn Jarir, and then tafsir ibn Kathir, and both of those are big books. Al-Tabari is a big book, 20 odd volumes. Ibn Kathir is a big book as well. It's a reasonably large tafsir. Some of the prints of it are 20 volumes too. وَكَذَلِكَ تَفْسِيرُ الْبَغَوِي Al-Baghawi as well, a considerable tafsir. And هَذِهِ كُتُبْ مَوْثُوقَةِ تَنْهَجُ مَنْهَجَ السَّلَفِ He says, these books are trustworthy and they tread upon the methodology of the Salaf. There are of course different types of tafsir. Some of the books of tafsir, they are written with a certain focus. Other books of tafsir are written with a different focus. Do not think all of the books of tafsir are written upon the same style. Some of the scholars who wrote books of tafsir, their focus was on ahkam, for example. Their focus was trying to pick out the rulings of the Qur'an. So their tafsir, every ayah, wherever they could find rulings, they focused on that in their tafsir. Other books of tafsir are written in completely different styles. There is what is known as at-tafsir al-ijmali, which is one of the easiest ways to begin the generic tafsir. That is an example of a Sheikh Abdul Rahman al-Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala. That tafsir of a Sheikh Abdul Rahman al-Sa'di is known as a generic tafsir. He doesn't go into any details or specifics. <laughs> Rather, what he does, every ayah, he gives you the general meaning of this ayah. 
Here Allah says such and such, that means and just basically explains that ayah. No narrations as such, no chains of narration, asaneed and riwayat and all the complexities that you'll find in Ibn Kathir and Al-Tabari, etc. Simple, straightforward, this ayah means this, that and the other. This ayah proves X, Y and Z. This ayah shows that such and such is haram. This ayah advises us that we need to do X, Y and Z. Simple, straightforward, general tafsir. That is one of the easiest ones to begin with that the scholars advise with because of that reason. And you will see, have a look at tafsir al-Sa'di and then have a look at al-Tabari and you'll see the difference between them. You'll see the difference of how they are written. You could look at the same ayah in the tafsir of al-Sa'di, you'll understand everything. Look at that ayah in al-Tabari, you won't understand a word. And the explanation in al-Tabari will be 10 pages long, in al-Sa'di it is 10 lines long, if that. So that's why the scholars, they advise always with knowledge on the whole, at-tadarruj. Now you begin step by step. Nobody would say to you when you want to start learning tafsir, go by at-tabari first. Or even Ibn Kathir. Even that, for a brand new beginner student, you may begin at a lower level than that even. So here, the point was that this particular narration is reported by a chain of narration of Ibn Jarir, who reported it from Sufyan. Sufyan, of course, there are two famous Sufyans, Sufyan Ibn Uyayna and Sufyan Al-Thawri. And in this particular chain, Al-Thawri, Sufyan Al-Thawri is the one being mentioned. And then An Mansur, Mansur ibn al-Mu'tamr and Mujahid ibn Jabr and Mujahid is famous for what? He is one of the tabi'een meaning the generation after the companions Mujahid ibn Jabr and what was he famous for? What we've just been talking about Tafsir he was famous for tafsir, mujahid. Often you find narrations from him in tafsir, and explanations of ayat. In books of tafsir, when they're talking about tafsir, often you'll hear the scholars say, and mujahid said, and mujahid said, and mujahid said. They're talking about mujahid ibn Jabr, al-tabi'i al-jalil, من أكبر تلاميذ عبد الله بن عباس رضي الله عنهما. He was one of the senior students of Abdullah ibn Abbas رضي الله عنهما. وهو الذي يقول and he is the one who said مجاهد. He said عرضت المصحف. على ابن عباس من أوله إلى آخره أقف عند كل آية مجاهد said I basically went through the whole Quran with Ibn Abbas آيه by آيه that I would stop at every آيه 
أسأله عن معناها and I would ask him about the meaning of it. I went through the whole Quran with Ibn Abbas and I would stop at every ayah asking him about the meaning of it. هذا هو مجاهد ابن جر من أكبر أئمة المفسرين ومن أكبر تلاميذ عبد الله بن عباس رضي الله عنهما. So he says, this is Mujahid now saying about the ayah, أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّى Have you seen Allat and Al-Uzzah? These were names of some of the famous idols that the Mushrikun had at that time. Allat was an idol in Ta'if. Ta'if, not too far away from Mecca, another city in Saudi Arabia currently. That was the name of an idol in Al-Ta'if. Wal-Uzza was the name of another famous idol they had at that time, which was in Mecca, near Arafat. Wamanat. And the other one which is Manat, the third famous idol they had, that is en route towards Medina. En route towards Medina, the name of the place is mentioned, Al-Mushallal, عند قديد. وَكَانَ يُحْرِمُ مِنْهَا الْمُشْرِكُونَ إِذَا جَاءُوا لِلْحَجِّ And this particular place, Al-Mushallal, next to Qudayd, en route from Medina, the Mushrikun, when they used to come en route and they got to this location where this idol was, that's where they used to make their ihram, to go into uh, hajj. The Mushrikun, they used to do hajj. But it was of course upon their shirk and upon their misguidance, the manners of what they used to do in their so-called hajj. From amongst their shirk in their hajj, they used to say in the talbiyah, لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ لَبَّيْكَ إِلَّا شَرِيكٌ هُوَ لَكَ تَمْلِكُهُ وَمَا مَلَكَكَ In the Talbiya they would say لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ That, oh my Lord, I am here in your service. لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ لَبَّيْكَ I am here in your service and you have no partners. Except for a partner maybe you do have, but you control him, he does not control you. So they affirmed partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in their hajj. Affirming shirk was doing their so-called hajj. So they would do their ihram at that location. And he says here, وَكَذَا قَالَ So he mentioned, قَالْ كَانَ يَلُدْتُ لَهُمُ السَّوِيقِ فَمَا تَفَعَكَفُ عَلَى قَبَرِهِ this is one of the explanations of what Allat was. There are two different opinions. One of the opinions of what Allat was, they say he was a man who used to cut out the siwak that you use for your teeth. He used to cut that and give it to the hujjaj. And in some narrations in uh, the books of Sirah, etc., they mention... He used to do more than that. He used to uh, 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 get food 
on, a, on plates and give it to the hujjaj. So it's mentioned he was a man who was in service of the people. That he used to give them siwak and he used to get food on plates and hand it to them. That is one of the narrations mentioning what, in fact he mentions, the Shaykh says, كَانَ هَذَا الرَّجُلُ يَعْمَلُ هَذَا الْعَمَلُ مِنْ أَجْلِ إِطْعَامِ النَّاسِ يَعَنِ يُحْسِنُ إِلَى النَّاسِ فَأَحَبُّوهُ وَتَعَلَّقْ قُلُوبُهُمْ بِهِ لِأَنَّهُ يُبْذِلُ الطَّعَامِ فَلَمَّا مَاتَ عَكَفُوا عَلَى قَبْرِهِ حَتَّى صَارَ وَثَلًا Mentions here the Shaykh says as well about the food that he used to uh, provide food for the people and provide the siwak for the people. So he was in the service of the Hujjaj and so he became a man that was beloved to the people. He became a man who was beloved to the people. And so when he died, they began sitting at his grave. And the same process started that occurred at the time of Nuh when they eventually went to the graves. The same process began at his grave. And they began to exaggerate at his grave. Up until eventually his grave became like a shrine that they were worshipping at besides Allah. That is one opinion regarding Allat. From Lattayaluttu Allat, the one who used to cut out the siwak for the hijjaj. The other opinion is that Allat doesn't have a shadda on the ta. It is not Allat. It is just Allat. No shadda on the ta. And upon that meaning it was just a rock. There are some explanations of that too. But this is the famous one, Allat. And they mentioned that this was from Lattayaluttu, the man who used to give them siwak and used to help the hujjaj. So he became beloved to them and when he died, they began doing i'tikaf at his grave. And then one thing led to another until they went into ghulu and began worshipping at that grave besides Allah. وَكَذَا قَالَ أَبُوا الْجَوْزَةِ عَنِ ابْنِ عَبَّاسِ كَانَ يَلُدْتُ السَّوِيقَ لِلْحَاجِ and similarly, it's mentioned Abu Jawza, Sufyan ibn Abdullah al-Rabi'i, mentioned the same thing in the, in the explanation of what Allah was, that it was the name of a man who used to give the siwak and the food, etc. to the hujjaj. He became beloved to them. When he died, they began falling into ghulu at his grave until they began worshipping at that location. And so his grave became a shrine that they worship at besides Allah. And it became recognized as an idol of theirs that they all go to and worship. Then, the next, and the others as well, Al-Uzza. Uh, uh, what was Al-Uzza? A tree. Anything more to add or just a tree? A jinni woman, so not a tree but a jinni woman. So they mention in some of the books of Tafsir, or in Sirah, etc., that there were three trees. Three trees, and they had 
put curtains around those three trees to make it like a, an inner area then covered by the cloth all the way around this triangular formation of the three trees, clothed around. And then in the middle, within that, which was no longer visible now because of the cloth around the trees, in the center was a jinni woman, like a sorceress. And so when the Prophet ﷺ sent one of the companions to go and destroy Al-Uzza, he went and chopped down the trees. Chopped down the trees and came back. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, مَا فَعَلْتَ شَيْئًا You haven't done anything. So then he went back. Because he thought he destroyed the idol, went and chopped down the trees. That's where they used to go to the shrine with the trees and the cloth. He chopped them all down, came to the messenger. The messenger said to him, you didn't do anything. So then he went back. And when he went back, that's when he realized about the sorceress or the jinni woman inside of that, that compound inside of that thing. And then he killed that jinni woman. And then that's when Al-Uzza was considered to have been destroyed. And then Manat as well, they mentioned it was a type of rock where they had certain engravings on it. Those are three of the famous idols that they used to worship. Then Ibn Abbas says, وَعَنْ إِبْنِ عَبَّاسٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمَا قَالْ لَعَنَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ زَائِرَاتِ الْقُبُورِ لَعَنَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ زَائِرَاتِ الْقُبُورِ وَالْمُتَّخِذِينَ عَلَيْهَا الْمَسَاجِدَ وَالصُّرْجِ رواه أهل السنن In this hadith of Ibn Abbas, he says, that the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam cursed the female visitors to the graves. That Allah cursed the women who visit the graves. And those who take on top of the graves places of worship and lights and decor on top of the graves. So here the first part of the narration is on that topic we touched upon a few weeks ago, that the messenger said, or that the messenger وسلم, cursed women who visit the graves. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, فَدَلَّ هَذَا عَلَى تَحْرِيمِ زِيَارَةِ النِّسَاءِ لِلْقُبُورِ This narration as it stands is a clear proof upon the impermissibility of women visiting the graveyards. The messenger cursed the women who visit graveyards, it says. So upon the apparent of this narration, it is a clear-cut evidence upon the impermissibility of women visiting the graveyards. And that is the opinion of a large amount of scholars. 
The Sheikh even says here the Jumhur of the scholars. That the majority of them, they have the opinion that it is impermissible for women to visit the graveyards. The scholars, they said, لِأَنَّ الْمَرْأَةِ ضَعِيفَةِ فَإِذَا رَأَتْ قَبْرَ قَرِيبِهَا مِنْ ابْنِهَا أَوْ أَبِيهَا أَوْ أَخِيهَا أَوْ زَوْجِهَا فَإِنَّهَا لَا تَمْلِكُ نَفْسَهَا مِنَ النِّيَاحَةِ وَمِنَ الْجَزَعِ The scholars, they said, because a woman is weak, and so if she sees the grave, of her relative, perhaps her own son, or her own father, or brother, or husband, then she will not control herself from falling into a niyaha, that type of screaming and saying words that are from the words of jahiliyyah, and that is from the major sins, screaming and losing control of yourself, and saying words that are from the words of Jahiliyyah. And that a woman would not control herself from falling into Al-Jaza', which is like the, the like depression and extreme sorrow and extreme grief. But a woman would fall into all of these types of affairs. So that is one of the reasons the scholar said that perhaps the messenger told us that the curse is upon the women who visit the graves. Maybe that's one of the reasons they've been prohibited from visiting the graves. Another reason, another reason, Secondly, perhaps it could be due to the fact that women are supposed to be upon shyness and covered and they are not supposed to go to places where there is going to end up being mixing at a graveyard where all of the men are there and they are burying uh, the person, then for women to be in and amongst all of those crowds, then that is not something suitable and it can lead to perhaps fitna occurring. So that is another reason maybe the women have been prevented from going to the graveyards. That is one opinion. And that is the opinion of a lot of the scholars that women are not allowed to go into the graveyards at all. Never allowed to step foot into the graveyards. But there is a second opinion. ذَهَبَ بَعْضُ الْعُلَمَاءِ إِلَى جَوَازِ زِيَارَةِ النِّسَاءِ لِلْقُبُورِ أَخْذًا مِنْ عُمُومِ قَوْلِهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم كنت نهيتكم عن زيارة القبور فزوروها فإنها تذكر بالآخرة The second opinion says that actually women are allowed to visit graveyards 
And the evidence, or one of the evidences they use is, the general hadith, where the Prophet ﷺ said, that I used to prohibit you from going to the graveyards, but now visit them, because they remind you of the afterlife. This narration, it is in reference to the fact that in the early days of Islam, the Prophet ﷺ had forbidden the companions from visiting the graveyards, because in the early days of Islam, it was a case of purifying the new believers and removing all of the old ideas and inserting all of Tawheed and purity into their hearts. So to block off the avenues to shirk was a priority in the early days. And one of the main avenues to shirk in Jahiliya were the graveyards. So in the early days the ruling was, the messenger said, he prohibits all to visit the graveyards. But then later when Aqidah became established in the hearts of the believers, and their understanding improved and strengthened, and they now <coughs> comprehended the religion and Tawheed and Aqidah, then the Messenger said, now you can visit the graveyards, because they remind you of the afterlife. That narration is an open general narration. The Messenger didn't say, now you, the men, can go and visit the graveyards, it reminds you of the afterlife. The hadith was left open. All of you, you can go and visit the graveyards now because it reminds you of the afterlife. Men and women, the hadith does not specify or exclude anyone. So some of the scholars said, this hadith, this narration is an open general narration and as a consequence of that, it applies to men and women, and it is in the command of a fi'il amr, fazuruha, and the amr by default, it's like a wajib, of course we know it's not a wajib here because of the qara'in or the evidences, but the point being that it is something which is like a command to everybody, all of you can go and visit the graves now, men and women, There is another narration they use as well to say that it is permissible to go to the graveyards for the women. There is a hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha in Sahih Muslim where she said or she asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that what should I say to them? Meaning the inhabitants of the graves. Meaning if I visit the graveyards, what am I supposed to say there? مَا أَقُولُ لَهُمْ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ فَعَلَّمَهَا الدُّعَى وَلَمْ يَنْهَهَا عَنِ الزِّيَارَةِ When Aisha radiallahu anha asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what do I say if I go there? 
in the hadith in Muslim, the messenger taught her the dua to be said. I never said to her, but wait, you can't even go in the first place. As a woman, you're not allowed to go in the first place. The messenger didn't say that to her. He didn't prohibit her. She was asking, what do I say when I go there? And the messenger just told her what to say. Therefore, affirming her going to the graveyard and then saying what he had taught her. That is another clear evidence in Sahih Muslim indicating that there is no absolute prohibition upon women visiting the graves. If there was, when Aisha asked that question, she would have just been told that as a woman, you can't go anyway. As a woman, you are not allowed to visit the graveyards anyway. But the messenger said no such thing. She asked the question, he simply answered her, told her the dua that you say. Therefore, affirming that it's okay for her to go, she can go and visit and she can say this dua. And also, there is a narration in Al-Bukhari and Muslim about a woman, Al-Mar'ah, Al-Lati Kanat Tabqa Inda Qabr, where a woman, she used to stay next to a grave, And that woman, when she was at this particular grave, and she was making some dua, in that narration it mentions that the Prophet ﷺ himself saw her at the grave. شَاهَدَهَا عِنْدَ الْقَبْرِ وَلَمْ يَنْهَهَا He saw her at the grave, and in the narration, there is no mention of him telling her that she needs to leave. It's impermissible for her to be at the grave. Haram for her to be there. Nothing. No mention in that narration of the messenger telling her to leave that place. And if it was haram for her to be there, certainly the messenger would have told her, you need to leave. So that is an example in Bukhari a Muslim, where the messenger saw a woman at the grave, and did not tell her that she needs to go and leave. So these kinds of evidences are some of the proofs that they use to say that it's not an absolute prohibition for women to visit graveyards. And then there is also the narration we mentioned last time, a few weeks back. This same narration where it says, لَعَنَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم زَائِرَاتِ الْقُبُورِ there is another version, لَعَنَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمُ زُوَّارَاتِ الْقُبُورِ That the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم cursed the women who excessively visit the graves. Difference between زَائِرَات and زُوَّارَات In one version of the hadith it says زُوَّارَات that the messenger cursed the women who regularly, excessively visit the graves. And so they say that's a proof women can visit graves. As long as they don't do it regularly and uh, upon some type of scheduled basis, on a constant basis. But if they go now and again, then the narration doesn't apply to them. 
It only applies to the women who regularly go. The curse is upon them. As for the woman who goes now and again, then that's okay again. So they have multiple evidences. Of course, the scholars, the majority in fact, who say no, it is haram outright for the woman to go to the grave. They have some more uh, statements that they mention. One of the statements they mention is, in this hadith where the messenger said, I used to prohibit you, but now go and visit the graves. Fazuruha. This is a fi'l amr. And this particular form of the fi'l amr in its default is used for men or for women. For men, zuru. For the women it would be. Zurna, Zarna. We carry on, we're going to end up in a different language. (laughs) So, Zuru is the masculine version. They said, look, that means the Prophet was addressing the men. He was addressing the men because Zuru, هذا الخطاب للرجال. وَخِطَابُ الرِّجَالِ لَا تَدْخُلُ فِيهِ النِّسَاءِ Zuru is the masculine version of the verb, indicating the messenger was addressing only the men, not the women. But that is not a strong argument, because the default, as it's known from the principles, in many narrations, the verbs used are masculine versions, the, the versions that you would use for males. But even if the hadith addresses men, or an ayah addresses men, the default is that women are also included unless there is an evidence to specify that it is definitely only for the men. Otherwise, generally it includes everyone. But this is something they mentioned. Uh, also they said, أَنَّهُ عَلَى فَرْضٍ أَنَّ هَذَا الْخِطَابِ عَامٍ لِلْرِجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ فَإِنَّهُ مَخْصُوصٌ بِهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ They say that even if we agree with you that this particular narration, فَزُورُوهَا So now you can go and visit the graves. is open to men and women. It's a general narration. They say, okay, even if it is a general narration, meaning men and women, you can go and visit the graves now. They say, even if it is, the narration we're talking about right now specifies it. Because the one we're talking about right now, Ibn Abbas, that the messenger cursed the women who visit the graves. So even if the zuruha was open to everyone, the fact that the messenger then told us in another narration that the curse is upon the women who go, it therefore proves that the women are excluded and only the men are intended. That's another one of their arguments to say that only women uh, are allowed, uh, only men, sorry, are allowed to visit and women are not. But like we said, the other scholars, they have multiple evidences as well. One of them about Aisha radiallahu anha that we mentioned uh, when she went to visit the grave of her brother Abdul Rahman. Uh, and, but then how are they going to reply to that? 
Aisha radiyallahu anha went to visit the grave of her brother Abdul Rahman. Clear proof that women can go. How are they going to reply to it? They say it's possible mahmulun ala annaha lam yablughha nahi walau balaghha nahi lam takun litukhalifa Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They say maybe, and again this is, it's a possibility but it's not a strong, strong evidence. They say maybe Aisha radiallahu anha was not aware of the hadith or the, 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 uh, the point of the curse being upon women who visit graves. Maybe she didn't know that narration and so she went and visited. But that doesn't apply because in the hadith in Sahih Muslim, she asked the messenger, what do I say? And the messenger told her the dua. So overall, what appears to be the case, well firstly, according to a Shaykh Al-Fawzan, what appears to be the case, he says, Bina'an ala thalika sahih al-rajih. According to a Shaykh Al-Fawzan, he says, the strongest and correct opinion is, ويذهب يثيرها من جديد ويبعثها على الناس من جديد لما يترتب على ذلك من المفاسد. So here, in essence, what is happening is a refutation upon us right now for what we've done. As Sheikh Al-Fawzan, in his opinion, he says, the strongest is that women should not visit the graves. Women should not or, or not, should not, women are prohibited from visiting the graves. He says the strongest opinion is that women are prohibited from visiting the graves. And he says even though there are some researchers these days, some researchers these days who have looked into this issue and they brought it out amongst the people and they have uh, uh, highlighted in that that it is permissible for women to go to the graveyards, that opinion is not the strongest opinion, he says, and those researchers have not brought anything new. There's no new evidence or new discussion they've managed to bring. And it's not permissible, the Sheikh says, for students of knowledge, and as a principle generally this applies, it is not permissible for students of knowledge to follow up strange or um, to follow up rare or, or one-off types of issues and look into them and bring them to the fore and spread them amongst people. Meaning topics that are not uh, mainstream. Topics that are rare, one-off topics here, one-off topics there. And they're not really the core of the topics or the core of the subjects and the core of the evidences. There are one-off little points here, little points there. Those kinds of things the Sheikh says, it's not befitting for a student to drag all of those things out and present them to the people 
and cause confusion amongst the people. Okay, then what about that little evidence over there and that little evidence over there? What about those then compared to all of this and cause a bit of issue amongst the people when the overall issue has been clearly highlighted? And according to the Sheikh here, the issue is clear that women are prohibited from visiting the graveyards. But as you know, some of the scholars like a Sheikh Al-Albani takes this other opinion that it is permissible for women to go if it's on a rare occasion, now and again, and they are fully covered, and there is no fitna, and they themselves are able to control themselves, with all of those types of factors in place, that a woman, if she went occasionally, that it would be permissible. But you can see here, as Sheikh Al-Fawzan says, it is impermissible, absolutely. So then what does the narration say? زائرات القبور والمتخذين عليها المساجد والصرج That the curse is also upon those who take places of worship on top of graves. And they put lights and adornments on top of the graves. فالمراد بذلك إضاءة المقبرة بالأنوار And so putting lights and lanterns and all these types of things on top of the graves, then that is impermissible to, to lighten up the graveyard with lights and lanterns and candles all on top of the graves and around the graves. That is impermissible to do because that is a means to opening up excessiveness and exaggeration at the graveyards again. And so it can open up the door to shirk by beautifying the graveyards in this way, lanterns and lights and candles and all these things, beautifying the graveyard and opening up the doors to possible shirk, step by step eventually leading to it. So, that highlights the impermissibility, the impermissibility of uh, taking places of worship on top of the graves, and the impermissibility of lighting, putting lighting within graves. The Sheikh says the only type of exception, so generally a graveyard should not have lights in it. You shouldn't have lampposts and lights and everything and so lit up the graveyard. There shouldn't be lights in the graveyard. The only exception to that is if a person uh, had to be buried at night, then of course you can take some light with you. You can take some lantern, some light with you for the sake of being able to bury that person. And then you take those lights out with you afterwards. That brings us to the end of this particular chapter. The fawaid at the end are a summary of everything we've mentioned. So next week, inshaAllah ta'ala, we'll start with the next chapter, which is Babu Maja'a. في حماية المصطفى صلى الله عليه وسلم جناب التوحيد وسده كل أو كل طريق كل طريق يوصل إلى الشرك كل كل طريق يوصل إلى الشرك. The chapter regarding how the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم protected and guarded, uh, safeguarded توحيد. And blocked and stopped every avenue leading to shirk. That's where we'll begin next week, inshallah ta'ala. 
We'll conclude upon that for today. Any questions or anything to add up to there? You know, for example, if someone had already prayed, for example, Aisha, due to traveling or whatever, so they combined at an earlier time, mm-hmm. and they arrived at the masjid and found the people praying, so he maybe came with the intention of just joining because it's better to do that, mm-hmm. and count it as like nawafal, extra prayers, mm-hmm. and obviously also with the intention of it being the two before sitting. Mm-hmm. Let's say you, like, are you supposed to pray all, like, you know they're praying Isha, so you have to pray for. You can't just pray. So if somebody, for example, was on a journey at Maghrib time, they are still on a journey somewhere, so maybe they've gone out of Manchester far away, they're coming back. And at Maghrib time, they are still 50 miles away yet somewhere, so they pray Maghrib and Isha. And then that final 50 miles, they make it up and they get to the mosque at Isha time. So they've already prayed their Maghrib and Isha whilst they were still journeying. Done. You arrive at the mosque now, they are praying Isha. You already prayed your Isha. But as the Jama'ah is going on and you come into the mosque, then you're not supposed to sit. You join join in with the Jama'ah. Joining in there, the best way is to join in with an intention of four. Nafal, you've already prayed your Isha. Four supererogatory raka'at. It's possible... Somebody could argue that what if the Imam is on the second raka'ah or the third raka'ah? So you make your intention for just two nafal and just pray the last two with him and that's it. But generally that isn't the, the best way. Because the Imam has been put there to be followed. The Imam right now is praying for so that's why they say a traveler or anybody else, when you join with the Imam, even if you're still a traveler, even if you're still a traveler, imagine somebody's just traveling through Manchester, they just stop to pray and they come in at Isha time. They are still a traveler, they're allowed to pray too, but when the Imam is praying for and they walk in, they have to pray for behind the Imam. They can't say, we're traveling, we're just passing through to pray Isha, two rakat, we're going. Imam is praying for, they're praying behind him, they should pray for. So the best way, if you're going to join, is to pray for intention. With the Imam doing the Isha of a for intention. With the two intention, then you're going to get into issues and differences and those types of things again. Mm. What else? Occasionally we can see them. The jinn, they take different forms. They can take different forms, different appearances. It is possible this particular one had some different appearance and she was visible and seen and he killed her. Because they can take appearances of animals, they can take appearances of humans, they can take different appearances, so they could be visible at times. Somebody else? Yeah, quick question. Uh, you know, when, when you bury the, somebody in the grave, I have seen, uh, you know, like in Pakistan, they, they dug it like five or six foot, mm. and then they, on top, they put some sl- like slab. slabs uh, or any, any wood or kind. 
But then see, they put the, the soil on top of that. Yeah. And uh, here nowadays, it's quite deep, maybe 10 foot down, and they just put the coffin in there. Then on top, they just put the, put the mud on it. When you dig a grave out, it's not just one hole. You're supposed to have within the grave the lahat. The lahat is a hole within the hole. So you dig out the overall grave. Then there are two methods. Either you can dig out another hole in the ground. So you have the, the large grave dug out. Then a smaller section you dig out further in, in the center, where the body is going to go into. So that section is dug out even further, then around it is dug out to, you know, around it overall, maybe up to six feet or whatever. Then that section in the middle, down to eight feet or something, another couple of foot. That's where the body goes in, then they put the slabs or whatever on top and then the soil. Or you dig out the grave and then at the bottom to the side, you dig out to the side and the body goes into the side and then everything is buried on top. The lahat, as they call it, lahat meaning something which is deviated away from the main uh, angle or, or from the main area. So either it goes into the center, a central further hole that the body goes into or onto the side. So that, that type of thing, generally from what you're explaining, is probably what they are trying to do. But here as well, it should be done in the same way. I mean, the coffin is not even uh, a sunnah or anything to do. Like you put a coffin around the body. Uh, and that's why maybe when they do it the proper way, make the lahat, then you put rocks and stones and things on top first, and then put the soil on top, and that uh, preserves the body in there from animals digging out and things like that. Is that the purpose of the slab then? That's what they do now, that's, uh, to preserve it, and so it can't be dug out in any way easily. But the lahad, that's what should be done, in the center or at the side. Is there any position as well? What do you have to be like? Position is mentioned in the sunnah about facing the qibla, towards the qibla, etc. I mean, it's lying down flat or lying down sideways, or eventually put body in the grave? The only thing mentioned is that they should be facing towards the direction of the qibla. Other than that, sideways, backwards, it's not really an issue. As long as they're facing towards that direction. Anybody else? Uh, is it known the timings of these hadith in regards to either allowing women to go to the graveyards or not? Is it known which hadith came first and which hadith was a bit later? And, uh, for, the, for this many narrations, it won't be possible. And even if it was, uh, the naskh is not something that is done. Abrogation is a last resort. And you wouldn't do it here. Some of these narrations are in Bukhari, Muslim, all types of things. There would be no such thing as abrogation on these narrations, even if the exact time periods were known. Because abrogation is the last resort. When you can't find any other way to explain something, then you say, okay, let's abrogate one of them with the other one. Because when you abrogate, it means you have to now cancel one of the narrations. And you don't want to be cancelling out any narration. That's a last resort. So on, the, uh, on this case, there wouldn't be any abrogation in any case. Ustav, have there ever been any cases where the curse, which is like a major sin, has been ab abrogated? Allah, I have to search that to see if there's any example. Hmm. Anybody else? Alright, we'll conclude upon that. Inshallah ta'ala, begin the next chapter next week, straight after Isha once again. <coughs>
Make sure you strive now, Juan, into the winter. It's not easy to uh, drag yourself out of the home, come out into the minus temperatures. But everyone needs to strive. Make sure you do it. Uh, I remember once in some of the other places and countries, there was minus 20 and the brothers were coming out for the lessons. But because here, Masakin, it gets to zero, gets to minus one, minus two. It's a frost on the car window screen. You can't sit there for five minutes to uh, defrost it. It uh, becomes a mushkila for people. So strive hard these days.